The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. We're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And this morning's theme is an assurance of eternal life. An assurance of eternal life. And what's that assurance? Doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. I love it. Every theme up until now has included the word assurance. And that's because that's the theme of the series. Marks of Christian Assurance. Now what this morning section um, presents us is a great warning. We before us have a great warning in order to make us aware of the precious reward of our faithfulness to God. Yes, there's a precious reward in being faithful to the Lord, but there are also stern warnings throughout Scripture of what happens when we aren't being faithful to God and His will. You see, this morning we get to a section that deals with the world. Not the cosmos, not the creation, but the evil system of man. Now we can, for a while, chat about how corrupt our world is. How the hidden agendas over the years have been exposed. But we're not here for that this morning. We are here this morning to look at how God's Word addresses the world and our love for the world. And how that is in contrast to our love or the love we ought to have for God. Listen, if you pledge allegiance to this world, this system, this evil system of man, I can tell you now, there is no eternal reward. There is eternal judgment, but just between the two of us, I don't remember judgment ever being a reward. Oh, that's bad. That's a no-no. I don't want judgment. But if we're faithful to God, if we live in accordance to God's will, our text says we will experience eternal life. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 2 from verse 15. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. See, John doesn't just use the word, the word world to speak of God's creation. He's not using the word world to speak of the Christian creation. He's using the, world, the word world to refer, in fact, to John 16, 11. This is the world that is led by the evil one. Are you with me? The world that is led by the evil one. I know there's a hymn. Uh, maybe you've sung it in the past. Maybe you don't even know this hymn. 
Um, but it sings about, this is my Father's will. And it's interesting because the worldly system today, Scripture tells us, belongs to the evil one. And then we are left in darkness. Nonetheless, let's continue. The power will probably do this throughout. Nonetheless, we continue. And I want to clarify that worldliness or being of the world is often misunderstood. I know there are some people that, you know, they, they, I think in youth group, we, we wrote the, the words, not of this world, right? Not of this world. And we were like, yeah, not of this world, man. We're going to go out in the street and witness to everyone. But we were also misled because we didn't truly understand what being of the world means or what worldliness refers to. If you can't hear me that well, I suggest you move forward because my voice has to go this entire message. All right. Nonetheless, <clears throat> often the world is identified with the current cultural issues that seem different to us. I look around in the room and there are people here from all walks of life. And we all come from different cultural backgrounds. Um, we, we spoke about it on Friday, you know, jokingly, about Lebola. Now, as a, as a, as a Christian who comes from a, a cultural background where that's non-existent, you grow up frowning against it and say, but that's, that can't be right. That's not right. And so we would say, some of us would say, but that's of the world. And we would classify that as worldliness. Listen, which isn't necessarily the case. John tells us not to reject all aspects of culture, but he's telling us, because remember, in our culture, there are things that are good, that are glorious, that, that point to God, that honors God. Therefore, John is telling us that we aren't to love or idolize our thoughts or values or behaviors in such cultural settings that are contrary to God's will. Don't love these things. Don't pursue these things. Because that's part of this worldly system. You with me? All right, that's just for definition. I want to move ahead. John tells us the following. He tells us that the world has these three weapons that it uses to appeal to us. The first is our sinful flesh. Now, how do we entertain the sinful flesh? I could say drug abuse, and you would go, whoa, that's way too extreme. But that's part of it. It would be drug abuse, drunkenness, gluttony, the abundance of possessions, sexual perversions. I mean, the list goes on. So the world presents these things that appeal to our flesh. John describes that this worldliness appeals to our cravings. It appeals to our cravings. Therefore, it's the sinful lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and also the pride of life. The pride of life. And so John wants to remind us as we get into our outline, John wants to remind us that this world is going to be burnt up and everything in it. 
You can go to your grave with all your riches. You can do that. But that stays. It remains only to perish. Only to sadly perish. But John also says there's one thing that remains. There's one thing that will continue. And that's the person who does the will of God. That's the person who remains in God. That's the person who will remain forever. Now let me clarify. I'm not saying the person who is judged will be annihilated. No, no, no. We believe, as Scripture teaches us, that you either receive an eternal reward in heaven or you receive eternal judgment in hell, which is ongoing, which never stops. There is no one perishes in the lake of fire. It's continuous torture. That's why it's so essential for us to be so serious about the gospel. Let me not get sidetracked. So John highlights three things. Three things that the world promises, but the world cannot deliver. And so as we look into the negative, we will see the positive. We need to understand the negative to see the positive. And that's the positive that we will be pursuing. Are you with me? So let me read verse 15 once again. Um, what I can do is, every time we, we post the sermon online, there's a transcript as well. So whatever you miss because the projector is not working, you can refer back to in the week when that is posted online. But let me announce to you that the first point is choosing who to love. Choosing who to love. And it comes from verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's fairly striking. Let me ask this question. And by now you should know it comes. The question is this. Isn't it true that the longing of the human heart is to be loved and to love? Would you agree? That in some measure, each of us sitting here want to experience a form of love. And we want to be able to share a form of love. We might not share the same convictions or the same motives behind such love. But we can agree at least on those two truths. So what John says here is, choose your lover. Choose your lover, but choose carefully. Choose wisely. And then in verse 16, he goes on to describe the world's love. But we'll get there in a moment. Remember, we've dealt with the following. John has told us that if we walk in darkness and we claim to be in the light what is that a lie we are liars if we are in sin but we say we are walking in the light John says you're lying you're either in the light walking in the light or you're not you're 
trapped in, in sin's device. So John points out a specific area of sin that threatens our fellowship with God. You want to know what that is? Worldliness. According to these verses, worldliness is what threatens our relationship with God. Now let me give you an illustration, just for the sake of it. It's wonderful weather, isn't it? But this kind of weather is the kind of thing that wants us to remain at home under a blanket with some Milo or whatever watching a movie. Yes? Was that just me? By the way, pancakes. Like, that has to. This, just, where's my wife? Pancakes for supper. Chris, you guys are in? Right, that's just, that's just, it just makes me think of that. It just makes me feel that way. The sad thing is, a lot of us would choose that over collective worship, over being here in this weather. We would choose that. Because it's a sacrifice to dress warm and come out and get wet. And our hair does funny things, isn't it, ladies? So we end up giving our appetite, our, our worldly appetite, the win. And what, what ends up being on the screen? What ends up being on the screen that you watch under your warm, cozy blanket, your warm cup of Milo? Isn't it worldliness? Right. Choose carefully. The world appeals to our cravings. And so we ought to resist or we will give in. You will give in if you don't resist. That's clear. Scripture tells us this. You will fail. You will give in. Because this worldliness is what hinders you from having a relationship with the Father. We would much rather be out there having fun in God's creation than be with God's creation. That goes for all of us. I know what desires we have. And a lot of the times, those desires hinders our relationship with God. And that's why we ask questions such as, Pastor, it feels like when I pray, God doesn't hear me. Well, why is that? What, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you busy with? What is it that hinders your relationship with the Father? You see, this world is the world of God's enemies. It's that which is opposed to God and the holiness of God. And so to love the world means to love the world's system or the world's way of doing things. The world wants to dress a certain way. How are we adorning ourselves? The world loves to talk a certain way. How are we presenting ourselves, right? When people look at you, do they see a difference in you or do they see the world? Do they see the world? Do they hear the world? Thomas Watson put it this way. The Puritan said these words regarding the world. He said, It is part of our Christian profession to fight against the world. That's on you, Christian. 
You were the one who chose to be baptized. You were the one who made a commitment. You said, Lord, I will serve you. I will worship you. A commitment is a faithful or faithfulness to the obedience. It means to remain faithful. Thomas Watson goes on to say, The world is a flattering enemy. It shows us its golden apple only to drown you in its luscious delights. The world never kisses us except with an intention to betray us. The world is no friend to grace. It chokes our love for heavenly things. Therefore, the sin is not the sin is not in using the world, but in loving it. The sin is not using the world, but loving it. John, uh, Thomas Watson says, believers are called out of the world. John 17, 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, Jesus said. He goes on to say, the world is deceitful. Jesus calls it the deceitfulness of riches. The world promises happiness, but it gives weariness. The world promises to satisfy our desires, but it only increases them. The world gives poisoned pills, but wraps it up in sugar. The world is polluting, and the world is perishing. It is like a flower which withers while we're smelling it. Do you agree with this definition of the world? Or no? Not entirely. My dear friends, I want to challenge you and say, if you do not 100% agree with such a definition, then your heart is somehow, somewhere attached to this world. It is. Therefore, John draws a sharp line. There's no middle ground. John says, if you love the world, you do not love the Father. If you love the world, you don't love the Father. Therefore, choose who you love. The world or the Father. You can't love both. Jesus said in Luke 16, 13, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do that. You can't love both. So you have to make a basic decision in your life. Will you live to know God and His eternal love? Or will you live for this world and its fleeting pleasures? Where are you? Who are you choosing? You can't take a little of both. At the end of the day, one of them is going to win. So does your heart belong to the Lord? Or does your heart belong to the Lord? The word love in the Greek is agape, which indicates that it's a commitment. It's not a feeling. And so John commands us, the only way that we can fight the love of this world is to grow in your love for the Father. Are you with me? 
If you want to combat your love for the world, you need to grow in your love for the Father. Because this world can never satisfy you. It won't. So if you've experienced God's gift of perfect love in salvation, then I want to say really you don't have a choice. If you've experienced God's love, really you don't have a choice. You are then in Him. Right? So why are we acting like we're in the world? Why do we watch the things in secret that we watch? Why do we keep company with the people we shouldn't keep company? Brother and sister, before I move on, I, I challenge you. Where do we draw the line? How serious are you about your love for the Father? Because John says, choose, but choose wisely. Choose carefully. <clears throat> Brings us to point number two. Point number two is this. Incompatible love. Incompatible love. But put your in in brackets. Pretty cool. Verse 16. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's from the world. That is incompatible love. See, the main point of our verse here is to explain why the world's love is incompatible with the love of God. They cannot go hand in hand. They cannot be married. They're too different. They are in too much of a contrast. And so Dan, John does this by showing us the things that make up this world. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the three weapons that appeal to our desires, our cravings. You know what the frightening reality is? We read it here in the New Testament and go, wow, that's powerful. But where was the first time these three weapons were presented? That's correct. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. These three weapons took out Adam and Eve. It says, Then the woman saw the tree that was good for food, right? She saw that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It says that it was delightful to look at the lust of the eyes and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, the pride of life. There it is, all three weapons. Who brought it to her attention? Right? The owner of the system, the evil one. Yet these same three weapons were conquered by Christ. You say, but if the first man and woman fell to that, then how do we overcome it? We can overcome it in Christ because I uh, turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 shows us beautifully how Christ overcame these three weapons. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 13, it explains that Satan beckoned Jesus to tell this stone to become bread. That's the lust of the flesh, isn't it? He's appealing to his craving. What, what was Jesus craving? He was hungry. He was a man. Remember that. Now, if you're hungry, you're fasting, and someone says, Ach, man, just have a donut. That donut looks good, man. It looks good. But it's a temptation to the craving. And Jesus overcome this. Next, in verse 5, Luke 4, verse 5, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world, tempting Jesus with the lust of the eyes. Finally, from verse 9 through 10, it tells us that, that Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple and challenged him by saying, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written... He will give His angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Remember that? Well, even this temptation of pride could not lead Jesus into sin. Can you see how dominating these temptations are? It's horrifying. You go to the shopping mall. There it is, appealing. These three weapons are appealing to your cravings. Whether it's through food, imagery, it's there. It's there. Now, upon careful inspection about each of these weapons, we can turn them into something positive that will give us spiritual victory. Firstly, the desires of the flesh. They appeal to our appetites, yes? Because it's the desire of the flesh. Desire means craving or lust or passion. The object determines whether such desires are good or bad. John tells us the worldly desires are of the flesh and the flesh refers to the tendency of humans wanting to fulfill natural desires in a way that is contrary to God's will so we want to fulfill our physical desire but we're willing to go against God's will in order for that fulfillment that's the issue John says that is the sin for example, sexual appetite. It gives way to um, immorality. How about physical appetite? It gives way to gluttony. So we give in to the flesh because why? We are naturally sinful. We are sinful at our core. And so we sin because we are sinful. The lust of the flesh is that powerful weapon that appeals to our very core. Because to us, sin is fun. Sin is enticing. 
sin is attractive. And so we're drawn to it like a fly that gets stuck on that fly paper. Or like a fish that's drawn to a baited hook. How do we overcome this? How do we overcome the desires of the flesh? I'll tell you in a moment. Kind of just let that hang there. Because secondly, the desire of the eyes appeals to our affections. The desire of the eyes appeals to our affections. Look, our eyes, like our natural desire, is not sinful. Proverbs 20 verse 12 says, The hearing hear and the seeing see, the Lord made them both. So seeing is not essentially bad. But we can say that the eyes are the window to the mind. Or the eyes are the window to the soul. And that's where sin enters in, isn't it? Starts in our minds. I mean, and then gives birth to, to sin. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.27, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he goes on to say, If your right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Don't go home scooping out your eyes, please. It's not what the text is saying. But what the text does tell us is that we are creatures of sight and therefore we must especially take care on what we look at, where we look. Listen, this was David's downfall. King David, 2 Samuel 11. David's eyes led him to a lie. And there he committed adultery. And because he committed adultery, what was the next thing? He murdered someone. King David, right? What does Scripture say about King David? A man after God's own heart. So we want to boast in the pride of life and say, but I can overcome these things. Can you? Or can you in Christ? You see, because that's the, the, the danger and that's the third, the third issue is the pride of life. Because the pride of life appeals to our ambitions. So what have we looked at thus far? Um, we've seen that our flesh appeals to our appetites. We've seen that the desire of our eyes appeals to our affections. But pride, or the pride of life, appeals to our ambitions. You see, pride is vainglory. It's boasting. It's, it's arrogance. It refers to the big mouth who exaggerates what he has just in order to impress others. 
It is the I, me, my person. And so the pride of life speaks of this person who glorifies himself rather than glorifying God. It's someone who makes an idol of their stuff, of their career, of their achievements, of their social standing. I mean, we could say they suffer from affluenza. It's pride, power, possessions, prestige. It's a position that we want in life. Yet scripture says these things are incompatible with God. Because God stands in direct opposition to these very things. This is what scripture says. John 4 verse 6, uh, James 4 verse 6. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that He will exalt you at the proper time. It comes down to this. It comes down to our love for God. That is what determines how we will resist the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The more we pursue God in obedience, in love, in sacrifice, the less attention we will spend at fulfilling our physical cravings through the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It brings us to our final thought. It brings us to the cure for this, for this issue. Verse 17 says the following. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These things, these, these lusts, they will pass away. But God won't. The earth will pass away, but heaven's glory will not. Therefore, when we come to this text, essentially, John tells us, whatever we love more than God, it won't last. Whatever we love more than God cannot help us. Because what if your plans shatter? What if your health fails? What if death beckons? What then? What, what then about your ambitions, your affections, your appetites? It's fleeting. It doesn't last. It goes away. But God, in His infinite wisdom, through His ever-enduring love, preserves us, helps us, sustains us. And therefore Jesus, in Matthew 16, 26, presents the, the proper perspective for, for, for what it is to love the world that passes away. He says, For what will a man 
Or for what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen, do you want to sacrifice your families, your relationship with Christ for your ambition? For your temporary desires? What will it be? You know, this text reminds me of Demas. Maybe you aren't too familiar with him in Scripture. He's a New Testament character, by the way. Demas, um, I think, is probably part of the saddest stories in Scripture. Um, And I want to use his life just to serve an important lesson for us. The first time we hear of Demas is in Colossians 4.14. And in this letter, Paul tells us that he was working hard alongside Luke. That he was faithful for the gospel. He was enduring for the gospel. Um, In fact, if you remember when I preached through Colossians, we kind of looked at a... Uh, 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 a team photo at the end of the letter where Paul commends all these men. And he's one of the men that Paul commended for his faithful work. Now it gets us to the sad part. We hear of him again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Only this time, as Paul ends the letter... As Paul comes to the end of his life, man, I really don't like reading the end of 2 Timothy 4. I mean, I always get teary because I know that is our brother's last words. I mean, he's about to be killed and this is what he says. And part of what he says, these last haunting words, is this. Demas has deserted me. Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. Yo. Hey. From, from being someone who is commended for their faithfulness in doing God's will to someone who has left, just abandoned it. And that's a new thing these days. It's called uh, deconstruction of your faith. We... we these supposed celebrity believers, Christians, they would call themselves, come out in a news headline and say, we no longer believe, or I no longer believe. And you can almost feel Paul's heartbreak when he pens these words. And what does it teach us? It, friends, this is real. Don't think you can cover sin's desire. Just hide it from those who are near to you. Because if they can't see it, then they don't know it's there. The things, the, the things of this world that we love, they cannot cover you. They will not fulfill you. You will keep chasing and pursuing and it will be your death. It'll ruin you. 
And the thing is this, it passes away. Proverbs says, it grows little wings and flies away. It goes away. Spurgeon said, this world is fading away. Hate the world. Hate the world. Value its treasure at a cheap price. Estimate its gems as nothing but fakes and its strength as nothing but dreams. Hate this evil system, brothers and sisters. Because it's a cheap grace. Spurgeon goes on to say, don't think you will lose any pleasure. I think that's probably our greatest what if. What if I miss out? FOMO, right? That's a thing. Don't want to miss out. Spurgeon says, don't think that you will lose any pleasure, but rather remember the saying of that early church leader, Chrysostom, who said, despise riches and you will be rich. Despise glory and you will be glorious. Despise injuries and you will be a conqueror. Despise rest and you will gain rest. Despise the earth and you will gain heaven. If you're not running after riches, then you're rich. You've overcome sins or this world's temptation to sin. The text does not say the love of money is the root to all evil. The text says the love of money Oh, I'm misquoting myself here. <laughs> Let me correct that. It doesn't say that yeah, the love of money or the, yeah, the money is the, 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 that, that thing. Money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. It says the love of money. The love of money. What are we pursuing? What is it that we're after? If you want fulfillment in this life and choose to chase the world's treasure, it's only going to last that long. Or are you going to side with the world? The world that will give you empty imitation or temporary illusion. The world that is governed by the evil one. Is that your choice? To love something that will end, that will go away? Or, or, and this is the solution, I promised we'd get to this. That which re remains, that which lasts, that which endures. <clears throat> you know what that is? John says, the one who does the will of God. The one who does the will of God will remain, will last, will endure. You see, Jesus said many things about God's will, especially in John's gospel. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He said, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will. Finally, he said, for I have come down from heaven 
not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. Friends, that's God. God does the will of God. And we kind of want to pedestal ourselves above Christ. That's where we fall. Because Christ's work is lasting. It's effective. It is the will of God. For our work to abide like Christ's, then our heart cannot be attached to this world. Our heart needs to long for, pursue the will of God. So do you want the assurance of eternal life? Do you want to know that you are on track? That if you leave this place, and because the trucks don't like stopping, especially here, and there's no lights, so it's even worse, and it's wet. If you leave this place, and those arrogant drivers do what they do, what can we say of you? Did you pursue the will of God? Or was it the pursuit of the fleeting things? My dear friends, the assurance of eternal life is to love the Father, to love doing His will. That means even when you feel like not obeying, you obey. When you feel like not committing, you commit. And when you feel like giving in to sin, you run. You run. I want to say this in closing. To continually have the assurance of eternal life, we ought to love the Father with all our hearts. And to see every room you enter in become a place of love from the Father. All your work a sacrifice of love to the Father. Every praise that rolls off your lips a confession of love for the Father. Love the Father because He first loved you. Amen? Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for this word of truth that despite our interruptions, we could still pursue the truth of your word. A truth that has been implanted into our hearts. We know it's there. It's that truth that convicts us when we are tempted to sin. Yet we choose to cover it. We choose to ignore it. We choose to avoid it. So Father, this morning, I would like to pray for us as a church, as individuals, that you would help us remain true and sure to your will. That as temptation comes, and it will come, you would help us to say no. You would help us as Joseph to, to take off and, and, and run away. And Lord, where we have fallen, where we have become slaves to sin's enticement, I pray that through your Spirit, you would help us overcome. That through the knowledge of your Holy Word, we can overcome. I pray that our desire for you will grow 
and that our desire for the world will perish. Lord, I pray also against the, the temptation of being hypocrites, of being like the Pharisees. We don't want to be assumed as those who love your will. We want to be your children who obey your will. And so we ask it in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.